0: Hello and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Forrest Goulden.
1: And I'm Joanna Rowell.
0: And this show may change the way you think about your brain.
1: (laughs) Our interview today is with Dr. Jason McLean, a professor at the University of Chicago. Dr. McLean talked to us about the past, present, and future of studies on neuronal networks and something called hebbian plasticity.
0: In doing so, Dr. McLean also talked about three important lessons, three possibly new perspectives on how your brain functions.
1: That's right. It's easy to look at any animal and see a big mass of cells and tissues and organs and think that because all that structure came just from one cell, that one cell must have had instructions for exactly how to build that organism.
0: to take this big picture view into the brain. After all, we know that the specific parts of the... After all, we know that specific parts of the thalamus will connect with specific parts of the cortex. It makes a sort of sense to think that our cells, our DNA, all contain the information necessary to connect cell A in the thalamus specifically to cell B in the cortex.
1: However, scientists now think that that's both factually and philosophically wrong.
2: That requires you to think about the brain in a deterministic manner, meaning that there's some master plan that dictates that cell A is going to uh, synapse onto cell B in every single person or every single animal that you look at. I think a better way to think about it is that there's rules that are probabilistic, so meaning that there's a likelihood that if cell A... Projects into this other area of brain, it has some probability of connecting on another, um, uh, onto another, onto its postsynaptic target, uh, which is going to be determined based on some genetic uh, pre-program and then can be refined by experience. Um, so, I think it's just a different way to think about the brain. It, the brain isn't isn't um, a, literally a circuit wiring diagram from uh, that you. You know, like your CPU that you buy from Intel, um, in, in which it ha- is deterministic. Each one of those components is directly wired to whatever one, whatever the next element is in the circuit. In the brain, it's kind of just um, guidelines that dictate that this kind of cell will synapse onto this other kind of cell uh, with this probability, um, and, and then you can refine the system with learning and experience.
0: That was Dr. Jason McLean, a professor at the University of Chicago. In that clip, he pointed out how important it is to shift how we may think of development, at least in the nervous system. It's probabilistic, not determinalistic, as he put it.
1: Deterministic, Forrest. Oops. (laughs) Determinalistic. I like that. Anyways, so a neuron knows to send out processes, axons, and dendrites, and external cues can guide these processes but these cues only do so much. They put cell A in the vicinity of cell B, but they also put cell A in the vicinity of other cells, C, D, and E. Which specific cell A connects to is not predetermined.
0: And the cell or cells that A connects to, the networks that A participates in, are incredibly important. That's because by itself, cell A can't do very much.
2: Basically, um, it's uh, at least in the brain, neocortex. Um, it's a very, very rare event where a neuron starts to do its own thing. Um, instead, it's always part of the crowd. Um, very rarely, if ever, have individuals. There are certain situations where you can have something like that happen, but um, this is not the dominant model. Uh, most of the time, you're part of the crowd, you're part of the network, and so you're going to do whatever the network's doing.
0: You can think of that kind of like some of the flash mobs where groups of people show up and perform choreographed dance numbers. When that happens, you have something interesting and, in at least some sense, productive. But when just one person starts performing a choreographed routine in the subway alone, that's kind of weird.
1: Yeah, it was really embarrassing, too. I can't believe I showed up a day early.
0: (laughs) We already had one big picture point, and that was thinking about things probabilistically rather than... Do you want to correct me before I say it?
1: Deterministically.
0: That's right. Don't (laughs) underestimate me. (laughs) Now we come to the second big point. Networks, not neurons.
1: It turns out, not only do neurons in the brain usually participate in networks, if they want to function productively, they pretty much have to.
2: If you um, uh, think that uh, each memory has to be stored by one neuron, this brings up this um, idea that was um, called the grandmother cell. Um, which is basically each, each cell can, holds one bit of information. But we do have a, despite the immense size of the brain, so um, I think the best estimates now are 20 billion neurons, um, if each one has to hold one bit of information, then you, and you think about how complex our day is and how many different things we have to know, uh, you very quickly run out of cells. So it's, it's not a very likely scenario that one cell holds one bit of information. It's much more likely that a neuron can be part of many different pieces of information. And it's actually the relationship of that neuron to all of its other partners that it's interconnected with that uh, dictate which one of the memories that is actually being recalled or which idea is being thought of, et cetera,
0: et cetera.
1: So neurons alone are not sufficient to hold all the information that we need.
0: Right. Even if we have 20 billion neurons, there are more than 20 billion pieces of information that we have to manage. There aren't enough neurons to do that. You need combinations of neurons. You need networks. And how these networks, these connections between neurons, form and are refined is extremely important.
1: That is a third important point from today's episode of the Grok Science Show. Here's Dr. McLean.
0: Neurons
2: are not isolated elements in the brain. They're highly, highly interconnected. and In fact, the number of connections are a few orders of magnitude greater than the numbers of neurons in the brain. Um, and these connections can be both strength, strengthened and weakened. Um, and uh, this, there was actually um, uh, a Canadian um, psychologist named Donald Hebb, who wrote a book in 1949. Um, I think it's titled Organization of Behavior, and uh, basically he postulated or he hypothesized that, that neurons, if they were related functionally, meaning that they were both going to be activated by the same kind of sensory input for instance that they would have a connection and moreover that that connection would be strengthened if, if that same sensory input that they're supposed to be represented uh, recurs uh, over uh, over and over from that uh... carlos schatz in ninety two came up with this phrase cells that fire together wire together um, and this has become uh... all prevalent. Um, and basically, this it's just kind of um, uh, uh, a nice slick way to summarize this idea that if you're both representing the same piece of information, you want to strengthen a connection um, between those two cells.
0: So Hebb had the idea that if two neurons are connected and possess the same information, they will both fire an action potential and the connection between those two neurons will strengthen. And if two neurons do not possess the same information and do not fire together, whatever connection exists between them will not strengthen and may even weaken.
1: Carla Schatz then shortened this explanation to the wonderfully pithy phrase, neurons that fire together, wire together. And there has since been experimental verification of this idea.
0: When I think of networks of neurons, I think of all the ridiculous technological marvels that let us look at neurons. We can dissect out slices of mouse brain. We can keep those slices alive. We can add dyes or ions or inhibitors to our cultures. We can do microscopy or electrophysiology to monitor what is happening in those cultures. We have any number of ways to observe neuronal networks in action.
1: And when we have those observations, when we gather all that information, we have computers to sift through the data and help us to make intelligible conclusions and predictions. At least, that's what we hope. This is actually similar to what Dr. McLean does. Here, let's let him explain.
2: We make an observation in, in our um, experiments, and then we put that observation into a model um, where we try to make certain things as realistic as possible. And then we let the model run and see what happens. Um, and the when it works, perfectly, then what we're able to do is generate new hypotheses and then go into the um, experiments and test them out. And so you move back and forth.
0: That kind of modeling is a simulation kind of modeling. It requires a lot of relatively high-tech tools and, of course, computational power.
1: Hebb, however, published his data in 1949. He didn't have all of the advantages we have today. So here's what he did.
2: He just uh, thought a lot um, you know this uh, it was a time in science where you could um, only publish rarely and still make a and still exist as a scientist and um, you could also um, think about a specific problem for a long time so uh, needless to say, no one operates in a vacuum. He had many contemporaries, and people were interested about um, how groups of cells would um, represent a piece of information.
0: What Hebb did was theoretical modeling. He looked at a brain and tried to distill it down to its most fundamental elements. He tried to answer the question, how would a brain filled with neurons, filled with neuronal networks, how would that need to function in order to store and process information?
1: This question has been at the heart of neuroscience ever since the patron saint of neuroscience, the founder of modern neurobiology, Ramoni Cajal, first drew neurons in the late 19th century. Here's Dr. McLean again telling some of that history.
2: You can go back to Cajal, which is the early 1900s and late 1800s, and uh, where all he was simply doing um, was uh, drawing cells. Um, So he would fill neurons um, in the brain um, of different animals and draw them, and he noticed that there was a cell body, um, and then that there was these processes, which are axons and dendrites, or that's what we call them now. And he thought of these things as wires. And as a result, he thought that they, these cells should be communicating with, with one another via wires. And so um, because these were so prevalent, the idea emerged even at that time, and he hypothesized that groups of cells would be representing a piece of information. Uh, have uh, extended that to think about how plasticity, in other words, the strengthening or weakening of a connection, would uh, change that and help um, help a system store multiple pieces of information. Um, and subsequent to that time, people have become increasingly sophisticated both experimentally as well as in kind of the theory and mathematical modeling of how memory could work how you should try to maximize the number of memories uh, that you can store, given a limited number of neurons, and how uh, the strengthening and weakening of a connection would help you do that.
1: There's a problem, however, with Hebbian plasticity, or the idea that neurons that fire together wire together.
2: Spike time independent plasticity, um, this relationship between the first cell and the second cell or cell A and cell B, is famous for the fact that if you put it into a model, a mathematical model, um, that it is inherently unstable. And what I mean by that is the um, connection will increase until infinity or if the uh, modeler or theorist wants to put an arbitrary cap on the strength of the connection. So we, everyone's known that this, is, this can't be the whole story.
1: Think about that problem this way. It's not a perfect analogy, but let's say Forrest and I are a n- neuronal network, such that every time I say something, he says something too.
0: And let's say that we exhibit something like plasticity, so that every time I repeat what Joanna has said, I repeat it a little more loudly.
1: And since I'm also connected to Forrest, I'll exhibit the same plasticity, too. I'll start repeating him more and more loudly, and pretty soon we'll be yelling at each other.
0: A hint regarding what might be the solution to this problem lies in something called the Blue Brain Project.
2: Basically, if, if you um, just take a few neurons and, and connect them up in in a model, then the model stays completely silent. In fact, um, there's a big uh, project in Switzerland called the Blue Brain Project where they have um, um, 100,000 neurons, each of which have many, many uh, um, compartments in their their axons and dendrites, their wires, and they're all interconnected. Um, And they use a big, giant um, supercomputer in partnership with IBM. Um, and unless they do something, um, meaning they put an input in, this, the, the, this big, huge model does nothing. It's totally silent. So that means that we don't fully understand something about the brain. We, we miss something that allows for um, the spontaneous activity to emerge spontaneously.
0: So you can model everything we know about neurons. You can network those neurons together into a computational model and you get nothing. You get silence.
1: Saying you get nothing is pushing things a bit too far. The blue brain project is good for addressing some questions, but when there is no input to the blue brain, there is no output either. There are no simulated neurons firing spontaneous action potentials, and that is not how a normal brain works. Here's Dr. McLean on that subject and how the recognition of this problem, and Dr. McLean's work, is leading to the resolution of the famous instability of spike-timing-dependent plasticity.
2: The real brain um, is never quiet, not during sleep, not during an- an anesthesia, during every single state, as it were, like if you're awake or you're asleep, the brain is highly active. So what my, what my lab is doing is looking at spike timing-dependent plasticity in the context of a specific state, which is slow-wave sleep. By studying this kind of uh, kind of plasticity during slow-wave sleep or slow-wave sleep-like phenomenon, what we've found is that the, the context, meaning what's happening in the population of neurons that are connected, um, actually allows for a stabilization of this uh, plasticity. So you don't have this runaway excitation or um, uh, basically driving almost to epilepsy is what what spike time independent plasticity uh, unconstrained does. But this provides a naturally occurring constraint. And this is all dependent upon uh, the relative timing of that connection between A and B so time is always important. Time between A and B is important. But the time of, of, of that um, connection relative to what's happening in, in the circuit around it is uh, critical. Um, and so one important piece of information that I didn't give you is that during slow-wave sleep, you actually replay like an analog tape almost um, salient um, events from, your, from the day and this is why it's called memory consolidation. Um, and so you the, the same pattern of neurons, A, B, C, D, and so on, um, is replayed over and over again uh, during slow-wave sleep. So where you are within that A, B, C, D actually is really important um, and determines how much... Um, strengthening you can get. And so this provides, um, because of this constraint of being part of a long sequence, as opposed to just an A-B-A-B, you actually are able to um, allow the synapse to stabilize and you don't get runaway excitation.
1: So having something closer to a real, normally functioning brain resolved the instability and runaway excitation expected by a simple Hebbian model.
0: That brings up an obvious question. Why then isn't everyone looking at normally functioning brains?
2: If you allow for the system to be active, things get much more complicated, which is why up until recently, uh, people kind of avoided this uh, problem. big problem for biologists is that we don't know very much about how the brain works. or a neurobiologist. Um, and so as a result, it's very difficult to, contr- to design an experiment where you can control every variable. Um, the fact is, is, there's variables that we simply don't even know that, that they exist, probably. Um, and if that's the case, then uh, you want to control things as much as you can. So it wasn't that, that people and 97 did anything wrong. It was based on their technical limitations and what, uh, and also wanting to control the system. Now with technology, we're able to allow a few more things to, to be free, meaning free parameters. And um, this allows us to, to start moving toward a natural context. And I don't doubt for a moment that in the next 15 years, there'll be another tremendous leap in terms of this kind of technology and the the, uh, thinking and theory behind uh, what you can do with it.
1: So just 15 years ago, they were experiments you couldn't approach technologically and couldn't interpret even if you
2: could.
0: And as Dr. McLean implied, it's hard not to get excited about what the next 15 years will produce.
2: I'm using a, a special model of slow-wave sleep. I think the next big leap will be to do this kind of level, high-level le- high kind of physiology um, um, in intact animals. Um, and uh, basically, microscopes are getting smaller and smaller and more portable. So basically, um, uh, you'll be able to have a, a rat or a mouse running around wearing the... Um, Wearing the microscope as compared to uh, being um, having to, to hold in a fixed position um, in order to do this or to slice the brain, which is another way to do this. Um, so I think that that's kind of a very ner- near term thing, but I do think that uh, in- and, uh, increasingly there'll, there'll be a move to more naturally occurring kind of. Um, or naturally, or experimental design that reflects what nature does. is a better way to say it, let's say. Um, And I I think that'll be the next big leap. But this is an important intermediate step, I think. This is saying that, that we can't always just look at everything
0: in isolation.
1: It is amazing to think about everything science might be able to do in 15 years.
0: Right. Scientists like Dr. McLean will be able to look at more neurons in more native contexts. That's an incredibly powerful opportunity.
1: That opportunity, however, comes with its own problem: how to handle all that data.
0: There's been a lot of
2: uh, talk about big data lately. Um, big data is the next big thing, and whoever has a major insight on in how to handle big data and meaning to pull facts and important um, truths out of big data that that they're going to make a lot of money. They'll be the next Google or what have you. Um, so so uh, as we look at more and more cells, um, neuroscience is moving more and more towards a big data situation. Um, and this is a, this is a non, non-trivial, this is an easy thing to have to deal with. And so the easiest way is to try to use models to get a handle on things.
0: Whoever can call facts and important truths out of big data will make a lot of money. I like that. Makes me feel better about going into science instead of business.
1: Uh Uh-huh, you thought about going into business? No,
0: and and I'd stick with science even if you promised me a million dollars. But it's still pretty cool that soon there may be more data to process and analyze than we know what to do with.
1: The important thing, however, is not how much data you have, but what you can do with that data. We closed our interview with Dr. McLean by asking him about the significance and purpose of his work.
2: Your brain. and uh, makes you who you are. Um, and I think uh, neuroscience um, uh, has two general um, goals. One, to understand the brain um, well enough that we can understand what makes us who we are, what makes us human. Um, and the other thing is, of course, uh, disease. Um, and we haven't really touched on that, but. Um, you know, the better we understand the system, uh, the better it is that we'll, or the more likely it is that we'll be able to design um, uh, therapies and inter- therapeutic interventions, etc., that can help either minim- minimally alleviate someone's uh, suffering and hopefully even work towards cures. Uh, I think basically just understanding basic rules about how the brain works uh, should lead to both things.
0: That was Dr. Jason McLean, a professor at the University of Chicago, talking about the past, present, and future of studies on neuronal networks and Hebbian plasticity.
1: This episode of the Grox Science Show, like all of our episodes, will be rebroadcast on stations across the country and around the world. You can find us online at the National Science Foundation's Science 360 radio stream, on iTunes, on the Public Radio Exchange, and on our own website, grox.net. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, and you can email us at science at
0: If you're listening to us live on WHPK here in Hyde Park, Chicago, the Grox Science Show will be right back with another interview. If not, for Charles Lee, Frank Ling, and Elise Kovic, I'm Forrest Goulden.
1: And I'm Joanna Rowell. Keep on grokking.